problem it's me chelsea <laughs> fairless you've just been riding a high this week new taylor music there's been highs and lows which we'll get into but how was new york new york was great i can finally reveal my location <laughs> i did stay at nine orchard the hotel the dime square hotel what was it like you know, a mixed bag, as you like to say. <laughs> okay. If what you... was the bag? Was it that, like, the hotel's nice, but the room is tiny? The location's good, but the customer service is terrible? Like, the the room was tiny, but they have a very considered bathroom where there's multiple doors that could be closed. So I think they really thought this through about a couple staying in a tiny hotel room together. That's nice. Once me and Tat stayed in a hotel room and there was just like the bathroom was completely glass and right in front of the bed. And we were like, how the fuck do you expect us to stay here? Yeah, that seems to be a, an early 2000 era design convention that they've done away with, thankfully. Yeah. Um, a man did try to get into my hotel room at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning. That so he just like thought it was his room. He wasn't trying to, like, rape and murder you. It's tough to say, Chelsea. No, I got up, and I looked through the keyhole, and then he was getting into another room, and I was like, okay, he was drunk, fine, whatever. Uh, But then, like, minutes went by, and he was just standing over the door, like, paranormal, not my door, but the door across the way, like, paranormal activity style, and I was like, I think he's peeing against this door. So I called the front desk, and I was like, what is going on? And then for 30 minutes, I could no longer see the guy. So then I felt stupid for calling the front desk. And then I could hear for 30 minutes the security or front desk person having a conversation with this guy being like, please leave. Why won't you go? Right. So what do they do? Just call the cops or did he leave? I don't know. Because after 30 minutes, someone opened their door in a different room and was like, this has been going on for 30 minutes. And then it just sort of stopped. But I did get a nice bottle of wine out of it. So there you go. Yeah, I enjoyed my stay. I did when I got to the room. I opened the curtains. I looked at my beautiful view. I looked down. There's a there's only a couple story apartment building across from across from the hotel. And I immediately locked eyes on a dog that was squatting and taking like a huge shit. Oh, I hate when you make eye contact with the dog or like you can't look away. Like you look at the moment that the shit. Yeah, I hate that. I mean, to be fair, I was on the seventh floor and this dog was, you know, a a few flights down. But like I zeroed in on that and just like Taylor Swift's Welcome to New York started to play in my head. But it was a lovely trip. I saw friends. I don't know if I would stay in that hotel again but just because, I don't know, maybe it's about a Soho hotel next time. I mean, yeah, obviously. <laughs> I could have told you that. But I feel like Dime Square is a better place to live. Possibly. Than to stay when you're visiting. I don't know. I definitely felt my age. I mean, as you know, all of our friends who are our age live in Brooklyn. Manhattan is for the youth. <laughs> right. But I will say the most surreal experience I had was going to dinner with our friend Nikki. I was walking to the restaurant and I just hear Lauren Garoni. And so I turned around thinking, 
who would use my full name? Someone I went you to- You actually know. Someone yeah. I went to college with, someone that I knew when I lived in New York. And I turned around and I locked eyes with someone I had never seen before. And sometimes like you, I do have facial blindness, but I definitely <laughs> knew this was not someone I, I knew in my life. And it feels like this was minutes long. I'm sure it was only a couple of seconds. And the person just went, I love you. And I was so stunned because, you know, who's prepared for a stranger to yell that they love you? Usually, and especially in New York, it's not nice things that are yelled at you. Well, that's nice. You met a fan. I I mean, I assume that they listened to the podcast, but then... Well, yeah, either that or they're a fucking psychic or something. Oh my God, but I said the wrong thing. I said thank you, and I should have been... Like, the much cooler answer would be like, no, I love you. And I just spent, like, the next seven blocks in like... Thank you's not that embarrassing. Like, that's actually fine. I know, but... Well, now you know. Yeah, now anyone that wants to yell I love you in public to me, I will just say, no, I love you. That's very sweet. Well, shout out to that listener, whoever they are. Yeah, please call them the hotline. <laughs> Who are you? And that's it. What What was the mixed bag of your week? Oh, no. I was talking about the Taylor Swift album, not my life. Oh. Shall I mean, we just get into that? Yeah, let's talk about Taylor. So last week, Taylor Swift released her 10th studio album, Midnights, which is a blessing or a curse, depending on your feelings about Taylor Swift. I'm obviously obsessed with her, so I was very appreciative that this album was released. But after listening to it for a solid week, it's not one of my favorites within her catalog. Wow. And by 10 studio album, are we including the re-records? No. Okay. No, this is not inclusive of those. I think given the album's visuals, we, or at least I thought maybe we were going to get a new sound, like a more Sheryl Crow in the mid 90s, you know, a very, if it makes Cheryl you Crow's happy. Sheryl Crow's second album vibes, you mean? Yeah, if it makes you happy type sound. But um, no, it was kind of amalgamation of all of her musical work put in one album. I think it's better than Evermore, which was her last album, but I don't think it's as good as Folklore lover reputation which were the ones that preceded it like there are some really really great songs that i love and have been listening to all week but there are other tracks on this album that do feel like a bit random and disparate and like they could be bonus tracks on one of her reissues or something like that yeah i mean the 3 a.m sessions really felt the closest to that era in the 90s where every rock musician felt like they needed to have a double album where it's like, no, you could just do a curation. So what Lauren's referring to is Taylor released this album at midnight, 12 tracks, and then she released the 3 a.m. version a mere three hours later, which had seven additional songs, which are all B-sides, basically. Which I feel like if she had done that a week after, like if today... At 3 a.m., the well, this 3 a.m. sessions dropped, it would have been more impactful. Absolutely, because at that time, it's like you haven't even had long enough to process the 12 songs that we've been given. And now I have seven other songs. It kind of like dilutes the whole thing. And those songs I don't think are particularly strong, although I need to give them another listen. Yeah, it would be if Netflix dropped a bingeable series and then four hours later they're like, and here's another season of it. It's like, wait, I haven't watched the first (laughs) 10 hours of this. 
Yeah, also, she has so many young fans. It's like, you're keeping these children up until four in the morning listening to this record? And one of the songs has the S word in the title. What one? Oh, Vigilante shit. Yeah, that's not one of the bonus tracks, though. Vigilante shh. But I will say I'm very thrilled that she picked the correct lead single for this album, which is Antihero. And I feel like we haven't gotten a correct lead single in years or maybe since 1989. That's what I was going to say to you, because through your love of Taylor Swift, I've come to understand that she is talented in many ways, picking the correct uh, first song, the first single, not one of them. No, but this... This was good. It does feel of the 1989 era. And when I say that, I'm referring to her album, not the year 1989. I think the verses of this song actually sound a lot like Blank Space. I think a lot of these songs, and again, I'm a Taylor Swift novice, but I think one of the reasons that people can connect to this music and even people like myself who are outside uh, the Taylor Swift standum is a lot of the songs, at least to me, kind of sound like other songs or there's echoings of other... Other Taylor songs yes. specifically. Yes. yes. For sure. Definitely. She's very self-referential, especially on this album. And sometimes it works in some t- like in the case of Antihero, I would say, but so- other times it feels a bit flat. But I find it really interesting that everyone is preoccupied with the lyric in this song where she says, sometimes I feel like everybody is a sexy baby. Not a lyrical high point, <laughs> I would say. And generally speaking, I think lyrically Midnight's isn't her most prolific work. Although, of course, she has her moments as always. Yeah. (laughs) I interpret the sexy baby thing. I got that pretty instantly because I think she's just talking about Ariana Grande and Olivia Rodrigo. Oh. Like, if you're a pop star, if you're Taylor Swift, like, you would feel like Maggie Smith if you (laughs) saw Olivia Rodrigo. You'd be like, I'm 10,000 years. I'm the Titanic woman. It's been 84 years. Yeah, I agree with you. There are some lyrics, and I've always felt this about Taylor's work, that really take you out of the song. The sexy baby thing, I was like, I wonder, does that make you think of Tad? Because I feel like we often call her a sexy baby. She does look like a sexy baby, yeah. She has a baby baby face, and now that she's shaved her head again, it, it is giving baby and by that we mean, I mean, Tad has a very doll-like face. Yeah. We're sort of conflating doll and, and baby, which I think Taylor is as well. Another lyrical thing in Antihero that I don't fully get is the bit where she talks about, I have this dream that my daughter-in-law killed me for the money. It's like, that has nothing to do with the rest of the song, which is all about personal insecurities, basically. Although I do love when she gets in storytelling mode. Yeah, I think that certainly for Lover and then Evermore and Folklore, (laughs) folklore, it seems to be this combination where she's mixing auto biographical things with these kind of imagined scenarios and so that is what is colliding in this album which she's kind of been toying with over the last few albums yeah but maybe this is a sign for her future child she's like i don't want that she's agatha christieing herself (laughs) this song though has really sparked a discussion with us that's been going on all week about 
anti-heroes and specifically female anti-heroes and what makes someone an anti-hero or an anti-heroine. I know. We should say that we are harping on Tay's lyrical choices, but the fact that she had enough self-control not to make it anti-heroine is... It's true. Well, maybe she learned from Lord's pure heroine and was like, I'm not going to go there. Although I do think the term anti-heroine is a great word. Not as succinct, but... Yeah. But when I was thinking about it, I think the qualifiers of a female anti-hero, for one thing, they have to be the lead character. And if they're not the lead lead, the main protagonist, they have to be the only woman. I would agree. Yeah. Like, think about, like girl with a dragon tattoo or gone girl or something like they have male protagonists but there's only like one other chick in the movie and it's the anti-hero right and they have to be unlikable there has to be something outside of society that society doesn't enjoy the unlikable thing it's like either they're like abrasive like Anne Hathaway in Rachel getting married yes in Rachel getting married or they're like really annoying like Tracy Flick yes in exactly exactly or they're not they don't have like annoying abrasive personality traits but they've committed some sort of moral transgression of some kind like Thelma and Louise yeah but they have to commit the transgression for the right reason, like Thelma and Louise. Right. So Amy Dunn in Gone Girl is an interesting example because she is an anti-hero, I would say, up until she slashes Neil Patrick Harris's throat. Yeah, that one is tricky. I do think she's an anti-hero, but there's a fine line. Like, when is someone just a fucking psychopath? Right. Like, you could kind of say the same thing about Sissy Spacek in Carrie, the audience is rooting for her to murder her mother and to murder the people that have been teasing her. But also she murders the entire school. That is true. If, if she had been more specific about it to her tormentors, we could be <laughs> on her side. Totally. But we still are. We still are on her side. But I'm just saying it's a it's a fine line. There has to be some justification for the bloodshed. And I think the biggest debate we had about this was within the film Girl Interrupted, which is Winona Ryder's Susanna Kaysen character is an anti-hero. Angelina Jolie is not because she becomes a full-tilt psycho. Right. Like when she's threatening against the the mental institution staff and claiming that she's going to stab herself or threatening that she's going to stab herself in the aorta, like that's anti-hero level. Pushing Brittany Murphy to commit suicide, that's when it goes <laughs> yeah, full that was a, psycho. Yeah, that was a bridge too far. Exactly. You can't do things like that that are just sociopathic. Although, I don't know. I think there are exceptions when it comes to television shows or like ensemble television shows where it doesn't necessarily have to be the lead because I feel like with an ensemble, you can tell the story of multiple characters in a richer way. Like, I do think that Brenda from Six Feet Under and um, Jenny Schechter from The L Word are anti-heroes. And we've been told that Viola Davis's character in How to Get Away with Murder is an anti-hero. We just don't watch that show. Yeah, I haven't seen that. But also, some anti-heroes, they are just flawed people. There's no major moral transgression. Like when you think about like Lena Dunham in Girls or something, like that's just a flawed person. And an annoying person. Exactly. Yeah, who else? 
I mean, Melissa McCarthy and Can You Ever Forgive Me does commit a crime, but it seems like the most benign of crimes. Yeah. But she is just kind of like a complicated, flawed. Well, there's also the self-destructive aspect because she's also an alcoholic, which is also a running thing. Like, you know, when you think about like um, Amy uh, Adams and Sharp Objects or something. Really anything Gillian Flynn has written. Yeah, exactly. But I love a female anti-hero. I wish there were more of it. And it's made me realize that there actually aren't that many. There's not, because we were trying to find older examples of this. And there are things that are anti-hero behavior in media. Like I kept giving the example of Angela Bassett and Waiting to Exhale, but it's an ensemble film. And there's a moral justification for it. And she doesn't have any of the personality traits. So there's anti-hero and then there's just like bad bitch behavior in film. Yeah. And those, you know, can overlap, but they are at times mutually exclusive. Well, it's also, I was thinking about Isabelle Huppert and like in Elle, she's kind of an anti-hero or she is an anti-hero, I think. But in the piano, teacher she's simply too crazy and like we aren't rooting for her to do all of like her fucked up like masochistic pervert shit I'm sure some of you are wondering when we're gonna say Julianne Moore and Magnolia but we did discuss this thoroughly and it's like there's she's not an anti-hero well we're not rooting for her to like get more (laughs) pills from the pharmacy and kill herself like it's just you know we want her to live and be sober Yeah. But also I was thinking about Jane Fonda in Clue because I was like, is she an anti-hero? Because I feel like at the time that that movie came out in the 70s, the answer would be yes, just because she's a sex worker and like smokes and stuff. But because she doesn't have the personality things or really do anything morally wrong, it's like not really. I guess in 2022 eyes, she wouldn't be seen as an anti-hero. So we have to take the time period into (laughs) Into consideration consideration. as well. Anyway, this was a fucking digression. Jesus. But we love it. Well, what Taylor songs did you like? I would say that my favorite song, because I love Dress from Reputation, is the song Maroon. Mm -hmm. Because I'm here for just... Her, a sing-songy, kind of folky, but pop, synthy song about, like, how we're just drinking wine in my shitty apartment, your shitty apartment. Like, what I try to imagine is, like, what is the reality of Taylor's world in these songs? And, like, what is some imagined thing? And what rosé is she talking about? Is she talking about white girl rosé? Is she talking about summer water? I'm just trying to think of all of the screw top yeah. Also, am I, am I supposed to believe that Joe Alwyn has a roommate? <laughs> I think not. I don't know if that song, I don't think that song's about him. No, that song's definitely not about him. I don't know who it's about, but the Joe Alwyn song is Lavender Haze, the opening track, which does kind of, to me, feel like a less horny version of the Fifty Shades of gray zane duet right i want to live forever something like that it's also the most overtly like jack antonoffy production he did produce every song on this record by the way or at least the the 12 tracks that does that is not inclusive of the additional 7 3 a.m tracks this need to release like 20 songs within uh, 12 hours of each other not even three hours of each other is just reminding me of the smashing pumpkins melancholy and infinite sadness where it's like this could be one album billy it doesn't need to be two records yeah editing my favorite songs on this record are actually the most shamelessly poppy and commercial songs like i really like karma it definitely makes me feel like i'm in azara 
but in a good way. I see what you're saying, yeah. And I like Bejeweled, which I know is a controversial choice because that does feel like a bit like music for children, but I like feeling like a small child. Is that why you married a sexy baby? <laughs> this is, for me, the the song that made me feel... I'm not going to say that some of Taylor's lyrics can be cringe, but sometimes the word picture she paints takes me out of the song. And in Bejeweled, where she sings, Familiarity breeds contempt. Don't put me in the basement when I want to be in the penthouse of your heart. What's wrong with that? I actually don't think that's a bad lyric. Uh, it's a little... Look, when I say these things, I'm only comparing this album to her best songs, her best lyrics, her best work. Do you want to give an example of her best songs and best lyrics? Oh, that's too broad. I mean, I think Red is my favorite album for sure. Right. I also really do like Reputation and love her a lot. I like all of her albums. There's no, yeah. you know, there's something on every Taylor album for me. Well, Reputation has, I have a soft spot for because that's when I came into the fold. And also as a former Tom Hiddleston stan, I was like here <laughs> for the wreckage of that. <laughs> Yeah. In the songs? Well, I really appreciated it, too, because my Taylor Swift fandom started in between 1989 and Reputation. Like, I've only been a Taylor Swift fan for, like, six years now. But it is crazy the amount of albums she has released in that period. Like, it's insane. She is incredibly prolific. Yeah, and I appreciate that. But at the same time, maybe a little bit of editing could have been in order. Maybe another pass on some of the lyrics you know even though I I love karma it's like some of that's kind of whack anyway I do love the lyrics and vigilante shit because it feels like a true crime documentary in a song that's a very reputation vibe right it's also very Billie Eilish as many people have pointed out right yes right with the lyrics she needed cold hard proof so I gave her some she had the envelope where do you think she got it from now she gets the house gets the kids gets the pride picture me thick as thieves with your ex-wife so who do you think this is about probably Scooter Braun yes could be Kanye um you know, same questions arise with karma, which is obviously talking about someone that's wronged her in some way. But the revenge song is very much a part of Taylor's just world. You know, Bad Blood being the most notable revenge song. Yeah, Taylor does have an obsession with the like the martyr thing and like I'm the problem and no one believes anything I say. And it's like, lady, you have tens of millions of fans who hang on every word. They do believe exactly what you say. Yeah. Should we get into the videos? Sure. I mean, I don't have much to say about the anti-hero one. It's definitely not my favorite. See, if I was directing that video, I would make her be all the anti-heroes we've just talked about. It would be like she's Catwoman and then she's Thelma and Louise and she's you know whoever she's Amy from Gone Girl covered oh, yeah. in blood we didn't I would say maybe the patron saint of movie female anti-heroes would be the writer Daniel Waters who wrote Heathers which we didn't add Veronica Sawyer oh yeah that's the most iconic yeah she could she could be her and he wrote uh, Batman Returns which is why Michelle Pfeiffer is so fucking good and has so much to do with Catwoman in that movie yeah, iconic. Yeah, I mean, Taylor is taking control of a, a lot of things. It is interesting. Again, those initial album visuals gave a signal of like, ooh, maybe we're in this new era. And these music videos are like, nope, Taylor's still Taylor. 
Yeah, it wasn't very refined looking. Although, a love scene John Early, obviously. That was great. We'd be remiss if we didn't know that the scene in the music video that shows the scale has been taken out and is now without it. And I think the music video... You mean the scene where she stands on a scale and she looks at the number and it just says fat. And I think it's actually a stronger visual to have the twin version of her looking at her disappointed when she steps on the scale. Yeah. No, it didn't need it. It definitely didn't need it. And the Bejeweled video came out a couple days ago. Kind of love, love the casting. Not perfect, but fun. And I don't think we've gotten a real fun pop video from her in a minute. Yeah, I mean, any video that utilizes Dita Von Teese and Pat McGrath. I know, but I wish that Pat had been in the fairy godmother role instead of the queen role because, like, there was no makeover in this video. Like, that's the best part of Cinderella when all the little birdies and mice and stuff are, like, making her, like, look fierce, you know? Pat could be giving her like a, you know, yeah. a jeweled eye or whatever the fuck. Isn't that what Dieter Von Teese was supposed to represent? Yeah, but I just want to know why there was no makeover. So I have a question for you. Hmm. Are you ready for this tour? Yeah, but I can't even imagine what it looks like. Because it has to encompass lover, folklore, Evermore, the reissues of Red, and um, and now this album. Like, that's a lot of ground to cover in a single show. Well, and I- play all of your hits that everyone knows and loves. Well, I think all too well, the it's the 10-minute version, right? Yeah. That's like her free bird. Like, that's going to be the song that is the encore song going forward. Yeah. You know, that's actually one opinion I stated on the podcast that I take back. I think I said when the red reissue came out that the 10 minute version wasn't as good as the four minute version. And I actually don't think that's true because I've never listened to the four minute version again. Like if I'm listening to that song, like I need the full story. I think just something happened culturally with that 10 minute version between just the the dust up and the relitigating the Jake Gyllenhaal and the scarf of it all, the short film, it going to the Toronto Film Festival. Like it potentially is going to get nominated for best short film at the Academy Awards. Like it's been canonized at this point, that song. Yeah, but it's also a very, very, very good song that was never a single before. So it gives me hope that she could release other songs as singles in this reissuing process that should have been singles. What is there left to do? Is reputation under what Scooter Yeah, Braun like knows? I think Getaway Car should have definitely been a single, if not the lead single from Reputation. Very true. I think we were deprived of Cruel Summer being the lead single or a single from Lover. Me is arguably the worst song she's ever made. <laughs> Actually, one thing that's cool about Midnight's is that there is not one song that is extremely embarrassing, which there usually is. Like there's usually a Welcome to New York, a me, a London boy. Oh yeah, London boy is pretty cringe. I love London boy, but yeah. So stream Midnight's guys. And I'll be right by your side as I was for the Reputation Tour. <laughs> for this tour, whatever it shall be called. The Midnight's Tour? I guess. I wish she would just combine all the words from the album she hasn't done. Like Midnight Lover, Ever Folklore More tour stop that's the worst thing i've ever heard shall we move on to movies the cinema every outfit at the cinema 
Should we start with the highbrow or the lowbrow? Let's start with highbrow. Okay. So I finally saw Triangle of Sadness. I know. I saw this film a few weeks ago, so you may have to remind me of certain points, but it is kind of unforgettable. It is. It's also the first movie I've gone to by myself in 10 years. I know. Your wife Your wife is out of town, and I had to watch the other film we're about to talk about <laughs> yesterday evening. So. Well, everyone's already seen it. Like, no one wanted to see it with me. It's also another two-hour and 40-minute film. But this one flew. It yeah. really it really does. Although, like, they could cut out 20 minutes of, of the film. The, the first act goes on a little too long. We should say for those... Yeah, that's true. We should say for those that don't know what we're talking about, Triangle of Sadness is Ruben Oslin, the guy that did Force Majeure and The Square. His latest film is about a cruise for the super rich, which sinks, leaving the survivors, including a fashion model, celebrity couple, trapped on an island. Lauren, can you relax that Triangle of Sadness in your forehead? I know. <laughs> I love that the entry point into this film is about the world of male modeling. And unlike Derek Zoolander, a middling male model, which I think there might be no more depressing career trajectory. No. Yeah, I really loved this movie. It kind of has everything. The characters are great. The plot is great. The comedic beats are fantastic. I haven't seen a vomiting sequence this incredible since Bridesmaids, or this comedic, should I say. Yeah, the film kind of exists in three parts that I would say like the first part of the film feels like White Lotus. The second part of the film feels like Titanic and the third part feels like the TV show Lost. Yeah. And in the first sequence, we meet Carl, who is a male model who had some success in a perfume ad. Oh, by the way, we're going to spoil these movies. So you'll put the timestamp in the show notes, right? Yeah. Okay, continue. But also, if you don't want to spend three hours at the cinema, but want to act like you know what happened in this movie, keep listening. Sure. So we see the dehumanizing but very accurate experience of being at a casting. Yeah. If you've ever been a part of that. And yes, the the film's title, which you hear, which I love when the title of a film is set in a movie. I know it's cheesy and like meta, but I love it. Yeah, so do I. Which is the triangle of sadness is kind of your 11 lines in your forehead. Yeah, it's where the Botox goes. A casting agent asked Carl to relax his triangle of sadness (laughs) if it's possible. You know, as a marketing thing for this film, they were giving out Botox. Wait, what? Yes. Oh, that's a genius. I know. Then we get a scene which does feel like something straight out of White Lotus where his model influencer girlfriend, Yaya, uh, they're at a very fancy restaurant. The check comes and she's putting on lipstick and, and acts like the check isn't there and Carl goes to pay and then brings up that they had this conversation that she had offered to pay. And she's like, but you grabbed the check. That was such a real fight. But we should also note that pretty much... Every aspect of this movie relates to the idea of wealth inequality in some capacity, right? Wealth inequality and how, you know, Yaya is someone that appears, as she says, I make more money than you. And when she puts her card down, it gets rejected. So this idea of appearance of wealth versus what actual wealth is. For sure. Which they experience when they get on the cruise ship. It does feel like we're in the golden age of films and television shows about wealth inequality between Parasite, White Lotus, Squid Game, this. It's great. It's so needed. It is, but I I know a lot of criticism about this, let's call it a subgenre in media right now, is that there's no real change, but that is the comment. There's no changing the system. No. 
Well, I mean, we could, but it would just be hard. The powers that be like to hoard the wealth. That's true. The octopus eating scene being the perfect analogy for that. Uh, on the cruise ship? No, on the island. Oh, when yeah. they're dividing right, right, right. it, like one woman kills an octopus and she hoards like a large percentage of the octopus to herself, despite the fact that there's like several people that are hungry on this island. Yeah. So this couple is invited on a cruise ship. That's probably if you've seen the trailer the biggest portion of the film. And so here's the thing. I was so excited to see this film. Like I looked at some of the marketing materials. I saw some clips, but I didn't fully watch the trailer. So I really did think that the rest of the film was going to take place on the cruise ship. The island is in the trailer. I know, but I guess I did not fully see it. (laughs) Anyway, they are invited on a cruise ship with like the uber, uber wealthy people where one guy is a Russian billionaire, multi, multi multi-millionaire. That was legit. Like, we've all heard that person being too boisterous at, like, a Beverly Hills restaurant, you know? Like, it was so legit. I mean, there were so many affluent character types that were lampooned in this movie, whether it's the influencer or the war profiteers or the guy that just wants to buy everyone Rolexes. That's a real person. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Woody Harrelson plays the ship's captain who will not leave his cabin and chooses to have the captain's dinner on the evening that we'll have the choppiest water, which leads to an almost fairly brothers-esque 20-minute <laughs> vomit sequence. So <sighs> satisfying. Also had Woodstock 99 vibes by the end of it. Although it wasn't a new metal song, it was like a, a hardcore punk song of some kind. The following day, so the war profiteers on the ship talk about in the dinner scene before as they're explaining to the model influencer couple how they made their money is they don't want to say that they make weapons. And so they're sort of... Hit- Not just weapons, but the worst kind of weapons being grenades and landmines. Which they're very annoyed <laughs> that they had to stop making. And so the... The fa- landmines. And... The grenades? No, they still could still make the grenades. It was the... Trust me, I just saw uh, this. You know what? A mere you're, hours ago. You're correct. But um, the following morning, as everyone is trying to recover from their food poisoning, the ship is taken over by pirates who launch a hand grenade at the hand grenade making couple who happen to catch it and she doesn't realize what it is until it's too late. And then the third... Well, she's like, is this one of ours? <laughs> is this or is this like a competing brand and the husband's like oh and then you see the ship blow up and then it's not subtle this movie there's no subtlety in any of this you know what great i'm happy with that too much subtlety in movies these days (laughs) that's not a dig on tar sounds like it is i'm still mad at you by the way look i'm trying to win my way back into your heart by just dressing like lydia tar (laughs) i may start doing the same i mean a black turtleneck looks great under a button-down shirt and that's a fact tie a little cardi around the shoulder if you grow your hair out a couple more inches, you will look like Lydia Tarr. Also, I saw a Triangle of Sadness at the AMC in the Century City Mall, which has her costume from her nervous breakdown on display in the lobby. So if anyone is looking for a place in LA to see this movie or to see Tar, go there. Sorry, I'm just imagining I'm going to get a call from you in jail because you've been arrested because you tried to steal <laughs> the Tar costume. Anyway, the last sequence of the film. Can your dog shut the fuck up or what? 
We really do need to get a soundproof studio. (laughs) The last sequence of the film takes place on a desert island, which I was not expecting. I know, I didn't see the trailer, but I had heard about this performance when the film premiered at Cannes of the character of Abigail, who is the toilets manager who becomes the captain of the island because she is the only one that has actual discernible skills in survival. Could you light a fire? Absolutely not. (laughs) Do I have enough internet on my phone to watch a YouTube video? Yeah, of course. Of course not. I could light one in a fireplace yeah, or something, but in nature, no. I'm not like rubbing together sticks and stuff. Like I need a match. So you feel like at all times we should have items on us in case we crash land on a desert island? I (laughs) fuck this dog. Now the dog is sitting in her lap. Um, Yeah, sometimes I watch movies and I get really stressed out because I'm like, oh my God, what would I do if I was in this particular situation? Like me and Tat were watching Dahmer and we were like, if you absolutely had to dispose of a body. Right. Like, you, di- you didn't mean to kill someone, but you did. You will definitely do hard time. Like, what would you do? Because at that point, you can't Google, like, how do I get rid no. of a body? But then it's like, how would I know what chemicals to have to dissolve it and, like, all that shit? I'd have to do it ahead of time. Yeah, no, the answer is we need to do the research now on a computer at a public library. We also No, I did figure it out, but I'm not disclosing it in case, you know, it comes back to haunt me someday. These are questions that you have with your significant others or your best friends. My friend's family runs a funeral home in Seattle. So the question is like just getting the body to... Oh, that's good. Washington State. But the thing is, there's so many cameras everywhere. That's true. And I've also said this on a podcast. So there goes that. (laughs) Like even like Tad and I were like even getting the body out of our house because all of our neighbors have ring cams, you know, like would be a total bitch. But we do have a lot of large duffel bags that Tat uses to transport clothes. So anyway. Basically what we're saying is it's not fun to get away with murder anymore. It's almost impossible, actually. And yet people do. If you have a phone, if you have a phone and you're in any sort of residential area, unless you're in the middle of fucking nowhere. But even so, there's there's traffic cameras. There's, you know, all sorts of shit. Welcome to How to Dispose a Body with <laughs> Lauren and Chelsea. Anyway, back to Triangle of Sadness. Somehow the film becomes even more interesting because, as I said, it becomes, in a way, lost. It's Char- also very yellow jackets. <laughs> oh, yeah. But the character Abigail basically runs the island now. And she uses Carl, the male model. She puts him in sexual servitude, basically. (laughs) He's a sexual indentured servant to her. Yeah, pretty cool. And the ending is, which does make you think, it is a buy-in in the desert island portion where it's like, if you were stuck in a desert island, wouldn't you walk as far as you could to see what else is on the island? Yeah. Yaya and Abigail go on a hike together because what does Yaya want to do? She wants to see if there's anything on the other side of the island. Oh, okay. And then Abigail goes with her because you think she's going to murder her because Carl and Abigail don't want to hide anymore. They don't want to hide their love. Yeah. I've heard people wonder why the first part of the film, which is Carl and Yaya and that discussion about who should pay 
for the restaurant and Yaya makes this point about like well I need to know that you can take care of me and if we have a child you know I'm not going to be able to she I like how she's like well you know I'm just like a model and an influencer and the only way out of this rat race is if like I find a daddy to take care of me it's like or you could just like get a real estate license like Trish Goff like it's fine but she gets her comeuppance because when they get to the desert island there's she can't trade on her looks to get things yeah so Yaya discovers that on the other side of this deserted island is a resort so what do you think happens in the movie because it's left open-ended which after all of that I don't really agree with I also don't particularly enjoy endings that are like, it's whatever you think it is. Like at the end of Inception, it's like, does his totem topple? Is he still in a dream or is he in reality? You decide. Well, that was terrible. But I do think she murdered her. You think Abigail murdered Yeah, Yeah, yeah. definitely. Because that's where you're left with is there's an elevator at the beach level, which is so James Bond. I wonder if it's a real resort. I'm sure it probably is. And Abigail obviously doesn't want to go back to her life where she's at the bottom of the capitalist power structure. Yeah. Shall we talk about Halloween ends? Yes. This film is very poorly rated and I absolutely dug it. (laughs) It takes a huge creative swing, which would spoil the film. So... Suffice to say, my non-spoiler review is that if you've ever wanted to see a slasher film whose mood board looks like Ryan Gosling's film Drive, this is your movie. I I don't know. I think all Halloween movies are entertaining. Like, even if they suck, they still have the incredible score, which adds so much. I think I've seen every single Halloween movie, actually. Even the shitty ones without Jamie Lee Curtis. And I don't know. I don't think this was as good as Halloween Kills. The previous one. Yeah. Which felt like a filler movie. So, And I don't understand how and why Laurie Strode, personality-wise, changed so drastically from Halloween Kills, where she was basically like living off the grid, suffering from extreme PTSD, to now just like being fucking June Cleaver or something. So before we do dive into spoilers, which in the episode description, we'll put where we stop talking about this movie in a spoiler, spoilery fashion. But the reason that people don't like this movie is it doesn't really focus on Laurie Strode and Michael Myers, or they're at least not the main focus, which is, the I think, a lot of why people dislike this movie. I did like the opening scene. All right, so now we'll get into spoilers. <laughs> Which is, yeah, this film is not a Michael Myers film. It is instead focused on a character named Corey Cunningham. So the cold open of Halloween ends is you think it's going to be the first appearance of Michael Myers. And it is this kid, Corey Cunningham. Get it? Michael Myers. Corey Cunningham. (laughs) CCMM. He's babysitting a kid who the mother says, oh, ever since Michael, you know, reappeared and disappeared, he's been really scared. And... I'm not saying that this kid had it coming, but... Oh, the kid had it coming. I'll say it. Yeah. Fuck this kid. (laughs) He plays hide-and-seek with Corey and locks him in a closet. Well, it's non-consensual hide-and-seek, for one thing. (laughs) 
He just hid from the babysitter and then staged the house to look like a crime had been committed. In a very elaborate fashion that you do feel like this is the introduction of Michael Myers into this film. Because why would an eight-year-old be able to stage a crime scene like Amy Dunn from Gone Girl? Yeah. And so Corey has a full-on panic attack also because the parents are coming home. And so he's kicking the door open and it flies off the hinges. And little does he know that the kid is right on the other side of the door, which is like if you he's kicking the door open because he thinks the child is being murdered like he's been locked in a room right by an unidentified person during his search for the child who we assume to be michael myers no um, but the kid identifies himself because he's like he's yelling at the kid to let him out he's like i'm not gonna let you out so he kicks the door open the kid is right behind the door he goes over a staircase railing and like lands on his neck in front of his parents. It's a horrible, tragic accident. But that kid had it coming. Kind of. And you know what? A judge of Corey's peers felt the same way because he's walking (laughs) the streets free and isn't in prison. Yet he's ostracized from the entire community who sees him as a child murderer and thinks he had more sadistic motives. Also, what David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, who have overseen this entire trilogy, are imbuing with this film, which is kind of taken, I think, from Stephen King's It, is that Michael Myers has kind of infected the town with evilness. Like, everyone is very mean-spirited. Right. And then I think the fact that David Gordon Green and Danny McBride are writing these scripts, this is the most feels like their other kinds of work, like, um, what was it, Eastbound and Down, because Laurie Strode at just one point talks about getting fucked. Again, there's a very, like, Jennifer Coolidge, like, you just need to take all, you just need to be with a guy that you want to rip all your clothes off and get fucked. (laughs) It's like, where did this come from? (laughs) So this, you know, young man who accidentally killed this, kid then is bullied by the entire town to the point where he does become a serial killer yes unsurprisingly i am in love with Corey. i can save him i can fix him we can do (laughs) we can do crime together and ride on a motorcycle to like a synthy sad girl song together so okay but he has to be the new michael myers spoiler alert michael myers dies We all know this. That's the crux of all of the marketing for this film, is that this is the movie where Michael Myers finally dies, but it seems to me that they've already found his replacement and he's just going to wear the mask. But maybe not torture Lori in the same way. Well, you've got Lori's granddaughter. So Jamie Lee Curtis kind of pushes her granddaughter towards Corey without understanding his backstory, or maybe she does, but that's what the granddaughter loves about Corey is they're both sort of looked at with side eyes in the town. An element that they added in this movie that I thought was interesting was that, yeah, there would be a certain subset of the town that don't fuck with Laurie Strode. It's like, look at my look, look at my sister. She can't speak now. Yeah. Because what, you were mean to a mentally ill person? Like, I'm not going to feel bad for you. I was like, oh, that's an interesting take on this and will probably be true. Yeah. Even uh, if it's not deserved, I mean. So anyway, Corey is, is pushed to the edge and he just must murder people, which maybe this says something about me, but I'm like, for a, a lot of this, I was like, Corey's justified, man. Well, he's justified in the beginning. Oh, because fuck that kid, yes. Fuck, no, not fuck that kid. (laughs) 
No, but the people that, the group of kids that do try to kill him, it's then fair to murder them as they did try to murder you. Like, that's just normal. Yes, they throw him over a bridge and assume he's died, but he's been dragged into the tunnels by Michael Myers, who decides not to kill him because he looks in his eyes and he sees like a montage of evil. Yeah, they introduce some supernatural elements where you're just like, okay, I guess we're doing this now. Also, in this film, it seems that Michael Myers is like, the mummy and the more he kills the more power is restored to him yeah but he's kind of like down and out like living in the sewers also there's a lot of homoerotic tension between michael myers and Corey cunningham not that i'm is like is there i don't think there is i think no <laughs> i think you just <laughs> looked for it no 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 when when Corey kills that guy in the tunnel and he's like grabbing the guy and the michael myers is stabbing the man and Corey's underneath the guy it's very Oh, yeah, that's, you're right. That is, like, overtly sexual. Yeah, and then when Michael Myers and Corey tussle for the mask, like, Michael Myers is just sort of, like, on top of him, and it's, like, shaky camera as if, like, he's fucking him. Yeah. I am correct in this. I found this actor very ugly, Hub, but I will say he does have a case of the Madonnas. I looked it up. He's a Canadian actor. And like fellow Canadian actor Ryan Gosling, they both affect this weird 1970s New York accent that has never existed. Yeah, you're right. That was weird. And then the film becomes... So Corey takes the mask from Michael Myers, which kind of doesn't make sense, but fine. If we're passing the torch, it's whatever. And then the film kind of becomes a gender-swapped version of Fear, where Laurie Strode is the William Peterson role, like, trying to warn her granddaughter against Mark Wahlberg, I mean, Corey Cunningham. It does become, like, a lifetime film where he's like, if I can't have your granddaughter, no one can. And he stabs himself in the neck. There's an elaborate ruse where Laurie Strode, because I just saw this film last night, where Laurie Strode calls 911 pretending, not pretending, but it's like, I'm going to kill myself to get away from Michael Myers. I know when she uh, when she called into the hotline, I was like, God, you know what? That, maybe that's not the worst idea, actually, like after everything you've been through. Yeah, there's only one way to end this cycle. You clearly can't kill Michael because he keeps coming back. He's just going to terrorize like future generations of your family. But Corey is not a worthy Michael Myers because... He's a dumb criminal and Laurie Strode gets the best of him. And so therefore he's like, well, if I can't have her, no one will, as I told you. So stab and he stabs himself in the neck. So he takes himself out of the plot, which is bizarre because I too was like, oh, okay, they're going to make a new Michael Myers. That's cool. But then they're like, no. And it's like, okay, then Michael comes back and we're going to continue these movies. Also, no, because like Chekhov's gun, you see throughout this film, this like garbage compactor. Which, have you ever Mm -hmm. seen those videos? It's like a YouTube channel or a TikTok where it's like, can I put a coffee machine through this? Of course. So that's basically what they do with Michael Myers. It was satisfied. Although it's so crazy how what happens after they kill Michael Myers in the sense that like they strap him to the roof of Laurie Strode's car and she just kind of drives him around town. Like I would love to see the police report about all of this because the cops are just kind of like, yeah, sure. Just like drive around with his body and start some sort of weird funeral procession that culminates in the body being destroyed in this Yeah, well, it seems like the town's secret. That, like, the cops are basically like, yeah, we're going to cut off this boulevard so no one can come in. (laughs) And the entire town, we might as well sell tickets, are going to watch a man go through a garbage compactor, is what I assume it is. Yeah. 
But yeah, I like this movie. I think any Halloween movie is worth watching, actually. Where do you think they go from here? I can't believe you didn't even bring up a certain housewife. Oh, yeah, Kyle. (laughs) Yeah, Kyle got a much bigger role in this one than she did in the last one. She is a bar owner. Also... Was it this the start of this season of Housewives or the previous one where she was like, oh, I got injured. Oh, it must have been last season. She was like, I got injured in a stunt, so I had to get a nose job. It's like, okay, Kyle. Yeah. But what a great excuse to get a, another nose job. You're like, a stunt in one of the Halloween films it deviated my septum. It, it can't be helped. It was fun to see her. Yeah, she's good. She survived, right? Yeah. Yeah. We also didn't bring up Lori is writing a memoir. What did you think of that? Would you read oh, it? Oh, we didn't. Yeah, we didn't talk about that. I couldn't help but wonder of it all. Because the way the scenes of her writing on her laptop are shot is very similar to Sex of the City. Cartoonishly so. Yeah, I, I, it's surprising that they didn't just go full like, I couldn't help but wonder. Is evil born or is evil created? The only thing that that they missed was doing that shot where the camera is outside the window. Oh, and then her writing? Yeah. Which would work in this film because, you know, you need that voyeuristic-esque shots to make it seem like Michael's watching her. It's always sad when they take Michael's masks off in these movies because you're like, oh, right, he's an old man. Yeah. We still don't really see his face in this, but we we get the idea. All right, shall we move on to Kardashian? Let's do it. Let's play the theme. Kardashianaholics Anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. So a few weeks ago, when we were talking about Kanye's latest antics, I put forth maybe the idea that we should stop talking about him because it was only going to get worse. Okay, so are we actually doing that, though? Because in that case, we have to just stop now and move on to Kim and Ivanka at the Polo Lounge. Yeah, let's give it a try. Okay. So Kim and Ivanka went to the Polo Lounge. I sent that to you, and I just wrote, woof. (laughs) It's funny because I don't think of Kim as someone that looks conservative necessarily, but when she's with Ivanka and they both have that Republican hair together... It's a whole ass look. Yeah, the the blonde hair and the roots with the barrel curls. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think at a certain wealth level, they just bleed green. I don't think it matters, political leadings. But it makes sense that they're friends. I'm for sure. I mean, a three-hour dinner, that's a lot to catch up on. <laughs> Couldn't it have been a two-hour one? That I could maybe understand, but three hours is a lot. Yeah. Well, also, we have to remember that Ivanka while evil was someone that was instrumental in the Alice Johnson freeing situation. So she's a very useful ally for um, Kim to have. So it's a an enemy of my enemy is my friend situation? Yeah. Well, according to TMZ, an insider at the restaurant tells us at one point Kim shared how deeply concerned she's been about Kanye's recent anti-Semitic statements and the fact that she's worried about her kids hearing what he said, especially given the fact that they have Jewish cousins. Jared and Ivanka are both also Jewish. Ivanka converted for Jared. Right. What else has been going on? Well, did you see that Kim's birthday got diverted? She was going to Vegas to see Usher on Saturday night and her plane couldn't land. So she went back to Los Angeles and went to In-N-Out. Yes, I did see that. With the camera crew. So I can't wait to see that in seven months. Also, I realized we haven't talked about the last two episodes of the Kardashians, but I did not. I thought I did, but I didn't watch the last week's i watched this week's but i did not watch the one where 
Chris had the hip surgery. I gotta be honest, I had to fast forward through that. The footage and the sounds of Chris's surgery was so fucking graphic. Okay, so now are you gonna go back? Because you were like, Chris, it's just like a hip surgery. Everyone gets it. Do you feel differently now that you see how barbaric the procedure actually is. I mean, I would say that way, I would feel that way about nose jobs too. Have you ever seen footage of that? That's horrifically graphic. Yeah. Um. No, my annoyance with Chris about this is in relation to like her idea about mortality and having that conversation <laughs> in front of MJ where she's like, I don't have much time left. <laughs> Just like zooms to their 90... 90- three-year-old mother i know yeah i could just tell you what happened because not much happens in the episode before the most recent one it's just a dual storyline where kim is going to miami for a skims pop-up but only for 24 hours and she wants chloe to come with her and then kendall has to go to vegas for an 818 activation and wants kylie to come and you know we've often talked and a lot of people have dm'd us about like what's real about the kardashians and what isn't And I think this is one of the best examples of that because those two things really happened, right? We saw the photos of Kim and Chloe in Miami. We saw the photos of Kendall at the 818 activation. So that's real. But all the conversations in between that, all these like setup scenes where it's like Kendall and Kylie and Kendall's like, I haven't seen you since you had your baby like six weeks ago. It's like, well, that's not true. Well, yeah, and we know because the hair and nail continuity almost never lines up. And then Chloe's like, I don't know if I want to go to Miami for 24 hours. I'm just a loner. Like, that's the other thing about this episode is they're all competing about, like, who's more of an introvert. Okay, I'll watch it, but shall we get into this episode? Yeah, you want to start with the daring vegan chicken photo <laughs> shoot by Ellen Von Unworth at the Chateau Marmont? Loved that. Oh, I will say the, the cliffhanger of the episode episode you didn't watch is like because Kendall's like oh I'm in Vegas and my friends are here because of the Grammys and then the episode ends on like Kourtney Kardashian got married in Vegas oh right and then it's like blackout continued next week so they didn't as we discussed at the time they didn't actually get married but, but they did go to an Elvis chapel. There was just no legal, legally binding paperwork involved. Which I'm kind of into. Yeah, why not? I think more people who are just dating should do that. Like, let's just get married, but with no legal <laughs> <laughs> expectation or ramification. Totally. You can post it on Instagram. You can pretend yeah. to everyone like you're actually married. And then you don't have to deal with all the bullshit you have to deal with when you get divorced. Although the the Elvis was on one and kept calling Courtney Chloe? Well, the Elvis just knew what was up. That was hilarious. Oh, is that what you think it is? Yeah, for okay. sure. Chris doing physical therapy, recovering from her hip replacement. She's seemingly recovering great. Well, she did have a bit of a breakdown, though, in this episode. Yeah, but then she pulled it together. Yeah, she did. Were her pants coming down? Is that why she didn't want the camera crew to film? Or I think so. You yeah. guys can't be in here for this. Yeah, I, I think so. Which, as I keep saying, Beverly Hills could use some of this breaking of the fourth wall where it's like, you can't be in here to film. Totally. Well, this episode broke down all of the walls, especially when they started to promote the show that you're watching. <laughs> that was genius. Because in this episode, they have the premiere of the first season of the Kardashians and they all go and you see them watching the show on the show, which I thought was brilliant. I did think it was cute and I did not fact check this because I assume what they're saying is true, which is they've never really had a premiere for a season. 
before and that they just watch it at Chris's house, which I definitely believe in the earlier seasons. I don't know if they're doing that now because they've seen the edits. They're all producers on the show. Yeah, of course. They definitely didn't have a premiere like this for season two. No, Hulu was like, I'm sorry, we spent all of the money. (laughs) Well, also like Chloe like can't have to sit through that episode. Like she already barely made it through this one. Also, I love when she screamed liar at the screen when Tristan Thompson came on and said something. And I think that she thought that people would like clap or I don't know. Didn't they? They were more like, ooh. No, I think everyone was just kind of taken aback because most people there didn't know that it was Chloe that said that. So the tension would be like, oh my God, like who said that? Like, is Chloe going to be upset that someone said that? It just was more awkward, I think, than she thought it might be. Because I do believe that it was premeditated. It might be. I mean, the previous episode and this episode really reveals how fragile and how much the press has done a number on Chloe. Because she's like... She's the only one that really talks about it also. But it's super tough because it's like, but you edit your photos in such an extreme way that it's hard not to call you out for that. Like... Totally. But the fact that we all feel entitled to weigh in on her appearance and all of that stuff, that's, you know, I think that's what she's commenting on because that's not normal. That's not something a normal person has to deal with. I didn't know where it was going when you were like, people feel the need to comment on. And it's like, well, we're talking about them right now. But yeah, her appearance. Yeah, I, I include us in that. Uh, meanwhile, Kim is organizing an iconic photo shoot. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was this episode. For Skims, which features all of the Victoria's Secret girls, which she didn't overtly say, but that's that's what these models are. It's uh, Heidi Klum, Tyra Banks, also incidentally models that know how to be on television. And then like, I don't know, ones I don't really care about, like Alessandra Ambrosio and, and Candice. Swana, whoever her name is. <laughs> yeah, that, that chick. It felt very genuine how excited Kim was to have these models, but also it's like they're models who aren't really getting booked and you paid their rates. Like it, it's not that surprising that they would say yes. Totally. But I think it's more like the joy that like I am in the financial position to hire whoever the fuck I want to rep my brand. Yeah, I don't know if it was the previous episode or this, but Kim Kim does say a, a vaguely Kanye-esque line where she's like, you know, Skim is talked about in the same breath as like Apple and Nike. And I was like, uh, no, but <laughs> it's a very- it is. That's, that's true. That's definitely true. I mean, it's a success. I'm not saying it's on the same level as Apple or Nike, but. Yeah, but like that's how I took it in the way that she said it. It's definitely a very successful company, but it's not Apple or Nike. Yeah, but you have to start somewhere. This brand has only been around for a couple of years at this point. Not even that. I'm absolutely with you. You also have Pete giving Kim flowers signed as Aladdin. I I completely forgot that around this time, she revealed that for their first Valentine's Day, Pete gave her the costumes and the rug from the Aladdin sketch, which is where they first kissed, which I assume is now housed in Kim's gigantic clothing archive. Yeah. I also enjoyed that Pete had a styling team to well, style him. Of course he has a st- of course he has a stylist. His groomer walks by Kim and she's like, oh, he's like almost as much of a diva as I am. And Mario's like, I would have touched him up. Like surely he didn't need his own makeup team. 
The preview for next week, we can't possibly get all of that in one episode, so I assume they're teasing out what's going to happen over a few episodes, right? There's the preparation for the Met, but I don't think we're actually going to get the experience of her going to the Met. I think it's going to be... Oh, that'll be broken up into like three different episodes for sure. God. We we are going to be finally fed on the Kardashians because it's like the Met goes almost directly into Courtney's wedding. Yeah. Which there's been so much time that's passed. It'll feel like I'm watching it for the first time. <sighs> Thank you guys as always for listening, especially to Lauren's fan in New York. And, uh, and yeah, we'll be back next week trying not to talk about Kanye yet again. See, you broke it. No, it's not. No, but then we can't. We can't make it like he who shall not be named. We just can't give this any more energy. Yeah, well, I think I think we just like will make a more concerted effort about what to cover and what not to cover. But I hope it it goes without saying that we condemn anti-Semitism and want to send love to all of our Jewish listeners. Absolutely. And us not talking about Kanye isn't trying to minimize what he's done by being like, oh, he's just a troll. You just have to ignore him. It's we're not going to add anything to the conversation that hasn't already been said and it will just feed it more and more. Yeah. Anyway, bye guys. We'll see you next week. (laughs) Bye. Bye.